Welcome to the Rock Podcast. Here in session four of our Answers in Genesis conference, Dr. Mitchell brings a message entitled Noah's Ark and the Global Flood. There's a cry in my heart. Okay, we're going to get started. We're going to do it one more time. We're going to talk about a really fun topic during this uh, presentation. We're going to talk about Noah's Ark in the flood. And for those, I've had some people ask, so I'll, I'll tell you what I can tell you at least up to date right now. For those of you who have, have asked and for those of you who don't know, we are in the process of building a full-size Noah's Ark in Kentucky. It's going to be about 40 miles south of the Creation Museum. We have been fundraising for a number of years, and you might imagine with the economy being up and down, that's been fairly difficult. But nonetheless, we finally reached our fundraising target. And what we're going to be able to do is we're going to, we've got the property, we're going to build a Noah's Ark, 40 miles south of the Creation Museum. It is going to be amazing. And we're waiting for one more permit. There's, there's always one more signature. So we've, got, we've, we've done about 12,000 pages of environmental permits and digging permits and building permits and this kind of permit and that kind of permit. And one of the funniest things that happened is about a year ago, we were in the process of trying to secure the amount of lumber that it was going to take, you know, because this is going to be like the largest, you know, wooden frame building in America. And we were calling around trying to secure quantities of lumber, and we called one of the lumber supply people, and they said, wow, that's a lot of lumber. What are you building, Noah's Ark? <laughs> and we said, as a matter of fact. So we're hoping that Noah's Ark will be open in, two, in the summer of 2016. Our consultants tell us they can have it done in two years. So pray that we don't have construction delays and lags, because, folks, it's going to be an amazing way to witness to a lost and dying world. Now, Noah's Ark. Is that Noah's Ark? No. <laughs> Looks like Noah's Ark to me. I mean, the giraffes are sticking out. The so you're telling me that Noah's Ark didn't have holes in the hole? Didn't have a woodpecker on the front? Didn't Noah have a butterfly net trying to catch the woodpecker? Were things sticking out the holes in the side? So you're telling me that that's not Noah's Ark. Is that, is that basically what you're trying to tell me? Okay, is that Noah's Ark? The book I got that of said that was Noah's Ark. The giraffe sticking out the top and the monkey on the porthole and the guy with the long white beard and the staff and the cute animals on the deck. Oh, isn't it cute? Uh, was Noah's Ark a big boat or a little boat? That's a big boat. And that one says Noah's Ark on the bottom. Is that Noah's Ark? Wow, that's a tough crowd. This is going to be a shorter presentation than I'm used to. Uh, how did Noah know how to build the ark? How did Noah know how to build the ark? God told him. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. As we said earlier, folks, ain't no giraffe going to stick out the top of that boat. Now, do we know Noah's Ark looked like that? No. We know certain things about the Ark that God's Word tells us. This is our present illustration or rendition of the Ark. We've done 
some different studies. We've had engineers that have worked with us, and we've looked through historical records, and we know that uh, uh, some people who were seagoing people or shipbuilding cultures, you know, uh, very soon after the after the flood, they built hull forms like this, not infrequently, because it's got the vein on the back and the skeg in the front. And what we found is this is more stable in high winds and high waves than this illustration of the ark. This is the way we used to illustrate the ark. Now, do we know it couldn't be that way? No. We don't know. This is the way we've illustrated the ark you know, up until the last few years. But we don't know exactly. All we're trying to do is make sure that we're as accurate and reliable and can give as many answers as possible as long as what we illustrate the way that we present the ark is in no way contrary to what God's word tells us. But again, a lot of shipbuilding cultures and societies had, ark, had hull forms similar to that, and it is a very, very stable hull form. So this is, this is pretty much what you're going to see when you come to the Kentucky and see the ark. You're going to see that. But if you say, Tommy, I still believe it was sort of a squared off kind of, you know, very long rectangle like a warehouse, I have no problem with that except to say that we think the one on the bottom is a little bit more stable. Facts about Noah's Ark. 437 to 510 feet long, 73 to 86 feet wide, 44 to 53 feet high, you know, depending on which particular cubit you want to use. It was a humongous vessel. It's a football field and a half long. It's twice as long as a 747. It is not a toy boat you play with in your bathtub. It is a huge boat for a very important purpose. You know that Noah's Ark had three stories, had three decks. Now, if you're Noah and his family, which deck do you want to live on? Well, okay, most people say top, but I've got a question about that. If you're living on the top deck, aren't you going to be going up and down the steps a lot to take care of the animals? I mean, wouldn't it be better to live on the bottom deck where you're closer to everything? No? So you're saying that living under the hippopotamuses and the elephants and things are not exactly where you want to be. Oh, what's a tough crowd. This is it. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shall thou make in the ark and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. There were actually rooms in Noah's Ark. And I can prove it. Here's an actual photograph from Noah's Ark. <laughs> hey, don't laugh. So far, I'm about the only person who hasn't claimed to have found it, right? But the thing is, God's Word says there were rooms in the ark. And when you think about it, that really makes sense, right? I mean, does it, do you think it makes sense to have rooms in Noah's Ark? Well, see, to me it does. You know, farms and stables, places where they raise animals or take care of animals. You know, they've got stalls or pens or cribs to take care of them. And I think it makes sense that they would have those things inside the ark. Now, I know God's Word says they're there, but you know, it, just, it just sort of makes sense. Now, I'm going to ask a question. And I'm absolutely counting on somebody getting it wrong. Because I'm going to feel real stupid if somebody doesn't get it wrong because it will be the first place that somebody doesn't get it wrong. So if you're the person that gets it wrong, you have joined a very non-exclusive club. And also, 95% of the other people in this room are just too chicken to ask it, okay? So at least you get a medal for bravery. Now, it makes sense that there would be rooms in Noah's Ark. The question I have for you is, why? That's the wrong answer. Thank you very much. So the, an so the animals won't eat each other. That's the standard answer. And it's because that's the way we've always been taught. You know, so the animals wouldn't eat each other. Question, were the animals on the ark eating each other? No. Because if the animals on the ark were eating each other, how many animals would have gotten off of Noah's ark? One. And it would have been really fat because it would have eaten everything else, right? 
I submit to you that the animals on, on board the ark were not a danger to one another. In the beginning, when God said everything was very good, what did God give man and the animals to eat? Plants. Now, did Noah have to go out and catch these animals? No. How'd they get there? God let them know. I submit to you that God let animals to Noah that were still obeying that directive. Now, did God say, Noah, take two of every kind of animal, seven of some, and some, feet, and some sheep to feed the T-Rex on board the ark? No. I submit that the animals and the people on the ark were still vegetarian. Now, were animals at the time of the flood eating each other? Had, at least some animals, had they become carnivorous? Ah, okay, we got yes, we got no. I even heard a maybe. I don't know. Okay, so, so we got all the answers covered. Um, were animals already carnivorous at the time of the flood? The answer, yes. How can I prove that? Nope. Nope, that, the sacrifice had nothing to do with animals being carnivorous. Animals are carnivorous at the time of the flood because I've got evidence in the fossil record. We've got fossils that we think are indefinite flood sediment that have pieces, either other creatures or pieces of other creatures in their tummy. So animals had become carnivorous at the time. We don't know if people had by that time or not. But, I mean, you know, they were so disobedient and evil, it's very possible. But nonetheless, I submit that the animals on board the ark were not a danger to each other, nor were they a danger to Noah and his family. Because after all, if the T-Rex were a danger to Noah, who's he going to send to feed the T-Rex? His mother-in-law is not on board the boat, right? <laughs> so you got a problem. So plants only. Okay, so if the animals are not a danger to one another, why would you need rooms or stalls or pens or cages? It makes plenty of sense. To keep them, what well, comfort to keep them separate. Certain animals may require, have certain type of you know, food requirements or eat certain types of plants as opposed to other ones. Would have been easier to, to, to feed the animals. Would have been potentially easier to clean up after the animals. Uh, just, just having the, the, the structure inside the boat could conceivably make the boat much more stable. Any number of reasons to have rooms or stalls or pens in the ark. But the common thing that you think about is the animals would be eating each other. I submit that the animals were not a danger to one another, nor were they a danger to Noah and his family. This is a photograph of one of the models we have uh, at the Creation Museum of the inside of the ark. Now, do we know it looked like that? Of course not. But the thing is, we have engineers and people who've studied these things for years, and they've helped us, you know, because they understand how uh, uh, you know, ancient buildings were constructed and shipbuilding and things like that, and they've helped us kind of put these structures together to see, you know, would these things really withstand waves and, and torsions and, and, and winds and currents and all these different things? You know, how could you build a wooden boat that wouldn't leak? We've got answers to all those things. We even have an answer to the number one question that we get about Noah's Ark. The number one all-time question. Is anybody brave enough to ask it? Nope. Nope. What'd they do with the poop? That's it. Hey, just plain and simple. You're on that thing for 370-something days. What do you do with the poop regularly, right? Well, guess what? We weren't there. But we have an idea about how you'd get rid of all the poop. Now, that idea involves a whole lot of water. Now, where would Noah get a whole lot of water? The answer, everywhere. Come see the ark and get the answer. But the thing is, when people think about the ark, you tend to think about the animals. I think about those poor people. I mean, how many, how many people here would like to have been on Noah's ark? None, maybe three days tops. After that, the adventure would have been over. You know, trying to clean up after the animals and the birds fly. That would have just been a nightmare. 
The total volume of the vessel was 1,400,000 cubic feet, roughly the equivalent of 522 railroad boxcars. So by and large, what do we show our kids? We show them a toy boat with a draft sticking out the top. We don't show them a floating warehouse. I submit that that's a problem. Until 1884, the Ark was the biggest ship ever built. It was one half the length of the Queen Mary. And they've actually done hydrodynamic studies to show how it's stable. You know how uh, you can, if you're designing an airplane, you put it in a wind tunnel and and check the the stressors, how how aerodynamic it is. And I think they even do that with NASCAR. I'm not really a mechanical kind of, I'm not an engineer. But uh, NASCAR, when when they're designing new cars, they put them in wind tunnels to see how stable they are. Well, they've actually taken... Uh, different types of hulls, different hull forms, and subject them to winds and waves and currents and all those kinds of things. And you know what the engineers have discovered? Noah's Ark was perfectly capable of surviving the voyage for which it was intended. Now, how do we know Noah's Ark was successful in completing the voyage for which it was intended? Because we're here. Because when I got up this morning and looked in the mirror, I saw somebody. Frightening as it was, I saw me. It's a floating warehouse. It's not a toy boat. That first big wave that hits that toy boat, the giraffes better hope that evolution's true and that they evolve into fish really quickly because this is going to be a problem. And again, if you believe the flood was only local, I can't help you because this bad boy is going down. Okay, there's no way that's going to survive. Well, Tommy... Yeah, you Christians, you just believe in all kinds of fairy tales. There is no... Look at all the... I had an astrophysicist a couple years ago. That's a true story. Attacked me because, you know, Christians are idiots and we're all morons and we don't know anything. But that fairy tale about Noah's Ark, he said, Tommy, look at all the millions of species in the world we have. There's no way you can get millions of animals on Noah's Ark. Now, what's our response to that? We agree. What do you mean you agree? It means we agree. Ruined that man's whole day. There's nothing upsets an evolutionist more than when you agree with him. He said, you know, what do you mean? You don't need millions of animals. How many animals would you need? Well, in the past, the worst case number we've used is 16 to 18,000 individual animals. Because you don't need 237 varieties of dogs. You need how many dogs? You need how many cows? See, this is not hard. You take two of each kind, seven of some. Well, how do you say, hey, you have two dogs? And they get off the ark. Now, what are they supposed to do? Reproduce. They're supposed to repopulate the earth. So when dogs reproduce, their offspring are what? Dogs. If you do that, you've overthought it. Okay. And when those dogs reproduce, their offspring are what? And when those dogs reproduce, their offspring are what? And it goes on and on and on until you have what? Lots of dogs. Is this evolution? No, it's just what? Dogs. What you start off with two dogs, you get all these different varieties of dogs. We talked about this a little bit this morning. This is called natural selection. (gasps) You can't say natural selection. You're a Christian. You believe in the Bible. You don't believe in real science. Nonsense. Natural selection was first described as a concept by a creationist named Edward Blythe 30 years before Darwin wrote Origin of Species. Darwin actually had this man's writing in his own library. And basically, it's a very simple concept. You get all these dogs together, and and, and they got this big population of dogs, and this group of dogs says, hey, it's getting crowded around here. I'm going to go north. They do better if they have what? Long fur or short fur? Long fur. What happens if they have short fur? They get cold. What if some of the dogs say, hey, it's cold up there. I want to go to the beach. I want to go south. What happens if they do better if they have what? Long fur or short fur? What happens if they have long fur? (laughs) They get hot. They don't reproduce as well. 
Dogs that go to heavily forested areas do better if they have dark-colored fur as opposed to light-colored fur. You see, there are physical characteristics that give creatures a survival benefit in certain environments. Now, does it work this way? These two dogs get together and say, honey, we're going to move to the forest, so we need to have puppies that have you know, pointed ears, dark fur, and short legs. Is that the way it works? No, you get what you get. I mean, whatever sorting or shuffling, whatever creatures have those favorable characteristics tend to propagate those you know, to further generations. Natural selection is a very real phenomenon. We see it in our world all the time. The thing is, the world says, the secular world says, evolution by natural selection. You know, if this process goes on for millions of years, a dog will be something other than a dog. There is nothing in a dog's DNA that's ever going to let that dog be anything but what? A dog. Started out as a dog, it's going to be a dog, it's always going to be a dog. It's a dog, it's a dog, it's a dog, it's never going to be nothing but a dog. But you get different varieties, so you get variation within the kind. You don't need millions of animals, you only need a few thousand. And I'll let you know something else, if you've been watching our website, we've published several articles in the last year. In preparation for the Ark Encounter Project, we've done a fairly thorough study of this whole idea, this concept of the biblical kinds. You know what we're finding? There are far fewer kinds than we originally thought. So probably the total number of animals on the ark is going to be less than 5,000 because there aren't that many kinds of creatures. The median size of the animals will be about the size of a rat. You know, most animals aren't very big. Only 10% or so of the animals will be the size of a sheep or larger. One railroad car holds 240 sheep. So the ark could hold 125,280 sheep. Using only one-third of the ship's deck surface, 40,000 animals could be housed. Is 18,000 less than 40,000? Is 5,000 less than 40,000? There is more than enough room for all the animals. Now, if you're paying attention here in this illustration or explanation, we're assuming that all the animals are the size of sheep, and only 10% would have been that large. There's more than enough room for all the animals. See, the remaining space could have been used for food, supplies, living area for Noah and his family. You know, when I look at Noah's Ark, when I think about it, you know what I don't say? I don't say, man, I wonder how you can get all the animals on there. You know what I say? Why'd you make it so big? You know, there was plenty of room for something else on Noah's Ark that went unused. There's plenty of room for more what? More people. How many got on board Noah's Ark? That's the tragedy. I mean, if it's, if it's an overstuffed houseboat with a draft ticket out the top, people are, are indeed going to laugh at Noah. He couldn't even get his own family on that boat. More than enough room for all the animals, all supplies, and far more people, and only eight got on board. You want to really get laughed at? Here's a question for you. Were there dinosaurs on Noah's Ark? Yeah. Actually, we do now. The problem is, if there are dinosaurs on the Ark, there are some logistic issues we've got to overcome. First of all, how do you get them through the door? I mean, do you butter their head and push? I mean, how do you do that? Take a running start and, you know, use like a plunger or something? And once you get them on board, they're going to get bigger. So how are you going to get them off? But, see, I would say that there were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark, and I would say that's an absolute yes. But I wasn't there. How can I know that? Anybody? God's Word tells us. It doesn't say dinosaur. doesn't have to. Were the land animals made on day six? Yep. Are dinosaurs land animals? Yes. Okay. I heard somebody say some, and I will accept that answer. This is why. 
When I was little, the flying reptiles and the seagoing reptiles, when we used the word dinosaur, we meant all those creatures. And technically that's not correct because the flying creatures and the seagoing creatures have a different physical structure than dinosaurs. But I understand why some people talk about, you know, the Ramphorhynchus and the plesiosaurs as dinosaurs. So I understand that, but that's technically not true. But at the same time, when I was little, Pluto was still a planet. And they got together and decided Pluto couldn't be a planet anymore, which I think is really tacky because if you're a planet, you should get to stay a planet. So, I mean, how many people think Pluto should still be a planet? So, I mean, I just, I mean that's just tacky to say you're a planet for 40 years. Now you're not a planet. I mean, that's just not right. But nonetheless, I, so when we talk about dinosaurs, we are, in fact, talking about land animals. Did Noah take two of every kind of land animal? Seven of some on board the ark. Were there dinosaurs on the ark? Did not hard. How did he get them through the door? Well, how did dinosaurs reproduce? You ever see one lay an egg? How do you know that? Jurassic Park. We'll get to that tomorrow night. Be here at 6 tomorrow night. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. You know what you find inside these? You find fossilized baby dinosaurs. We've got fossilized triceratops eggs and T-Rex eggs. I mean, how big is a T-Rex egg? Anybody know? It's about the size of a football. It's about the, I had a kid about a month ago, so it's, it's about the size of a Volkswagen. I thought, man, the people at Waffle House would love to have that. You know, one egg, and you'd be, you'd be eating all day long, right? But the thing is, it's about the size of a football. So before you have a big stegosaurus, you have a what? A little stegosaurus. This is not hard. So the thing is, if God's going to lead these animals to Noah, is he going to lead fully grown animals that are far into their reproductive years or young animals who have many, many reproductive cycles left? So you're going to take the adolescence, if you will. Now, we don't know, for example, how big a T-Rex would have been before it could start laying eggs. It wouldn't necessarily have been you know, 25 feet tall. Maybe it was 10 feet tall. So this is really not hard when you think about it. Now, the ark was a type of what? What did the ark represent? salvation it was a type of christ eight people got on board was anybody turned away Noah was a preacher of righteousness don't you think for all those years he's saying there's trouble coming need to be on board this boat god provided for those people in that day an ark of salvation any who walked through that door would be saved god provides for us an ark of salvation his name is jesus christ neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I am the door. If by me any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Folks, the last thing we need to be showing our kids is a toy boat with the label Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark was a real vessel for a very important purpose. Were there enough room for the animals? Absolutely. How could they take care of the animals? We got lots of those answers. We don't need to be showing them a cartoon. We need to be telling them what God's Word tells us. Noah's Ark was important because this planet was about to be completely covered by water. And I've had any number of geologists tell me, Tom, there's just no way the Earth could have ever been covered completely by water. Actually, they're wrong because it was. The same day where the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were open. You see all those rock layers? I don't need millions of years. All I need is the history and the Word of God. In a few weeks, I'll get you all the rock layers you can stand. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the basic view of 
flood geology. Now, I, this, is, this is sort of the, 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 so the, the, the Cliff Notes version. I'm not going to go into any particular geologist, particular nuance. There's a number of creation geologists, and they have different ideas and different concepts. So I'm not going to necessarily favor one or the other or go in. I'm just going to give you the basic idea. If you take the surface of the earth and smooth it down to like a ping pong ball or a billiard ball or something, there's enough water to cover the surface of the earth for a depth of about two miles. Can you drown in two miles of water? Yep, without any trouble at all, you can be dead as a hammer, drowned as much as you can be in two miles of water. So we would argue that all the land in the pre-flood world was gathered together in one place. It says all the waters gathered together in one place. It makes sense there was one land mass. Now, the fun part is when you talk to different geologists, they'll give you different ideas about what the shape of that land mass was. And that's one of my favorite things. Because sometimes you get a couple of these geologists together, say at lunch, and you're sort of innocently talking about stuff. And if I've got to go somewhere and there's a meeting, right before I go to that meeting, I say, you know, I read something in an article the other day. The doctor so-and-so said something about that land mass. It was shaped like a horseshoe. And I just leave. And I come back three hours later, and they're still fighting over. It's like putting five cats in a sack. It's the most fun you can have. But the, but the thing is, because I frankly could care one less. But, but they're in this big discussion about rocks, and I don't care about rocks because they're rocks. But nonetheless, you know, you, you, you've got this one landmass. So you've got the fountains of the deep breaking open, and you've got all this water coming out. There's a lot of volcanic activity. And where the water comes out, there are these erosion surfaces. So you get this unimaginable amount of sediment. You've got all this particulate matter in the air, and you get these terrible storms, and you've got, you know, all the water in the currents, and some of the estimates of the currents are as much as 120 to 150 miles an hour. You've got these hypercanes and tsunamis. It just, it's just an unimaginable storm. And what it does, it completely remodels the surface of the earth. And it's really incredible to think about that because after the flood, the world had been completely changed. You know, different topography, different weather patterns. And people say, well, there's really no evidence of that. And I say, well, actually, there is evidence. It's everywhere. See how these rock layers laid down? And then, you know, there, there are different models about how, say, the rock layers of the Grand Canyon were laid down and whether the, the canyon was actually carved by the receding floodwaters. Some people think that, you know, the, the Missoula, you know, formation and all that, some you know, either... You know, between 50 and 300 years, I've heard different estimates where the, where the, where the you know, their ice dams or, or, or earth dams break and the water carves out the canyon. There are different models like that. But nonetheless, all this catastrophism can account for that. But what happens is you have the, the tectonic activity and, the pla- and then the land mass is broken up and the plates are pushed apart. You know, have you seen these computer models on TV where they kind of take all the continents and they kind of put them back together? Well, there are different ways to do that. It's not, there's not just one way. There are a number of ways to kind of you know, fit the jigsaw puzzle together. But you've got these plates that are moving, and they start moving. They bang into each other, and they push mountain ranges up. So you get all these different changes on the surface of the earth. Now, what's the highest point on earth? My name is just like 28, 29,000 feet. Well, that's more than two miles, right? So the thing is, I just said we could, we could cover the surface of the earth for a depth of like two miles. Well, if Mount Everest is 29,000 feet high, it wouldn't be covered, right? Well, the thing is, we would argue that it wasn't there in the pre-flood world, that the topography was more moderate and that because of the tectonic activity in the mountain building, we can explain how Mount Everest got there. Now, is there any, any evidence? Is there any, way to, is there any reason to think that's true? Actually, there is because... Um, you know, like I said before, I've, I've gone down the Grand Canyon several times, and you go down the Grand Canyon with secular geologists, and they'll point to the rocks and say, they're obviously millions of years old, and you know, your Bible's not true, and we've tested these rocks, we've got this proof, and you kind of listen to it, listen to it, listen to it. So when we were sitting around a campfire one night a few years ago, one of the geologists was there, uh, and he was talking about how the Bible wasn't true, and I thought, well, this is really weird, because you went on an AIG trip, but the Bible's not true, but anyway, I'm glad you came, and we're having a nice discussion. So finally, he kind of, you know, took a break at one point, and I said, well, that's, okay, it's kind of interesting that you talk about that, but I said, um, you know, how do you explain the fossils on Mount Everest? 
Now, if you go up the slopes of Mount Everest and you dig down in the ground, what do you find? What kind of fossils? Marine fossils. And I, you know, I mean, how'd they get there? I mean, they flop up there and freeze? I mean, how'd they get there? <laughs> but anyway, I asked this guy, I said, how do you explain the, the marine fossils on the slopes of Mount Everest? And he gave me an answer I'll never forget. This is what he said. He said, Tommy, it looks like at one time it was underwater. And I said, you think? <laughs> but see, you've got this topography that's like this. So you've got all these sea creatures that are buried because, you know, shellfish and things don't get away from floodwaters and sediment. So they're trapped. You have this tectonic activity. It pushes these things up. So what's it going to take with it? It's going to take the sediment on the surface. I can explain how it happens. All I have to do is trust the Word of God and trust my eyes because that's what you see. But the world says, no, it takes millions of years for these things to happen. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens, located 95 miles south of Seattle, Washington, erupted. The eruption was triggered by an earthquake centered beneath the mountain that measured 5.1 on the Richter scale. The lateral blast swept out the north side of Mount St. Helens at 300 miles per hour, with temperatures as high as 660 degrees Fahrenheit and the power of 24 megatons of thermal energy, it snapped 100-year-old trees like toothpicks and stripped them of their bark. Before the famous eruption at Mount St. Helens, scientists were mostly familiar with slow-acting examples of geologic change. But at Mount St. Helens, geologists watched the Earth's surface change quite rapidly. Icebergs were buried in hot avalanche material. They melted and formed badlands in days. Eruptions on May 18 and June 10 produced fine layers in hours. On June 10, mud flows cut zigzag canyons 100 feet deep in soft sand and mud, complete with perpendicular side canyons, canyons that are reminiscent of the geography of Grand Canyon only 40 times smaller and clearly produced within hours. Mud flows over the following decade cut hundreds of feet into solid rock in just days of cutting time. Fallen trees formed a log mat on the surface of Spirit Lake and dropped bark to the bottom of the lake, accumulating up to three feet of bark peat in just a couple years. and vertically floating logs sinking to the bottom of the lake resulted in buried trees in only a decade. Similar to the trees of Yellowstone's fossil forest, which are also buried in volcanic layers. Even though Mount St. Helens is a very small catastrophe compared to the flood or the major catastrophes immediately following the flood, it provides a better clue to what happened in those times than the slow geologic processes which are most commonly seen in the present. Wow, it doesn't take millions of years. 
Well, like I said, you go you go to the Grand Canyon, they're going to tell you a whole lot of time and a little bit of water caused those rock layers. I'm going to tell you just the opposite. I mean, that canyon wall obviously took millions of years to lay down, right? It's only less than a day. Look at those rock layers. 45 minutes to an hour. It doesn't take that long given the right conditions. Also, how do you explain this? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. You know, when you go around the, earth, around the world and dig down in the ground, what you find, you find fossils. You find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Now, how does, say, this creature become a fossil? How do you get a fish fossil? Well, I'm going to tell you what my high school biology teacher told me. And I remember being very puzzled about this at the time, and I wasn't even concerned about creation and evolution at that time. I just was kind of puzzled by the example. This is how she said you get a fish fossil. Fish dies, sinks to the bottom, gets covered by sediment, then you get a fish fossil. I remember being very curious about that because I remember at the time distinctly wondering how you got a T-Rex fossil. I mean, it had a heart attack on the prairie and falls over. How long does it take to slowly bury a T-Rex? Okay, but anyway, you've got a fish that sinks to the bottom and becomes a fossil. Now, also at the time, I had an aquarium. What happens when your guppy dies? What directions it go? It goes up. It goes up, it gets scavenged, it goes away. And out, out, in, the, out in the oceans and lakes, this thing doesn't last very long. There really is no way that that works because this is what happens. And we actually did an experiment at my home one time to, to, to explain just this thing. Because like I've told you earlier, uh, I have a wife and three daughters. And I'm never quite sure what catastrophe has occurred when I'm at work or when I'm on the road. The only thing I'm sure of is it's my fault. Um, but nonetheless, I came home one day and there was great whining and crying and wailing and gnashing of teeth because Earl had died. And I was trying to be a good daddy and conceal my complete and total joy at the situation because, after all, the best kind of cat is a dead cat. And, uh, but anyway, I, my, my daughters were upset. I was like the Grinch. I thought up a lie, and I thought it up quick. I said, girls, this is what we'll do. Daddy's to the rescue. How would you like to have a fossil cat? And they went, that's pretty cool. How do we do that? And I said, this is what we'll do. You know, because, we, you know, we'll, you know we'll, we'll have a fossil cat. We can put a Santa hat on him at Christmas and use him as a doorstop and scare the UPS guy. Because after all, the best kind of cat is a fossil cat. So anyway, so anyway, I said, what we'll do is we'll put him out in the backyard and we'll wait for Earl to become a fossil. So we did an experiment. We put up a sign, scientific experiment, progress, do not touch. We waited to have a fossil cat. It's going to take time. I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm, I'm on the trail of truth, justice, and the American way here, folks. Okay, we're going to have a fossil cat. Well, by day nine, as I remember, the lawn service was no longer mowing that part of my yard, and the neighbors had, were circulating a petition, which I think my wife signed twice. But nonetheless, <laughs> I was on the trail of having a fossil cat. Well, the experiment progressed, and I think by day 20, the girls had completely forgotten about Earl. I think we'd gotten him a guinea pig or something. Earl was a distant memory by this point. But at this point, Daddy was on a quest. We're going to have a fossil cat. Well, let's just say this experiment was not looking good, okay? We got to day 65. I didn't have a fossil cat. No way, no how. I was right disappointed. What happened to Earl? Or rotted. He got scavenged. He went away just like you'd expect, right? So how does something become a fossil? Well, here's a fish having a good day. Here's his good day coming to an end. 
here's a pre-fossil, here's a fossil. How come that cat got to be a fossil and I didn't have no fossil cat, no way, no how? What's the difference? This fish got buried rapidly under unimaginable amounts of sediment. Here's a fish eating another fish. Now, you got two options. Either this fish is eating the other fish, gets choked, has a heart attack, sinks to the bottom, waits to get covered by sediment, or something buried this creature rapidly right in the middle of lunch hour. (laughs) The fossil record screams rapid burial. Now, we would argue that the vast majority of what we call the fossil record is on the basis of the sedimentation from the flood. Not all the fossil record, the vast majority. We certainly have evidence of post-flood fossilization. But when you look around the world, dig down in the ground, what you're going to find are fossils. The surface of the earth basically screams, hey, there was a catastrophe. The only way you cannot see it is by not wanting to. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And be ready always to give an answer. Folks, like we say back home, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. That was awesome, and I'm glad because of the speed of your rapid speech that we are able to record you so that we can listen to you again. (laughs) This will be worthwhile listening to over and over again with a pen in hand. You're able to uh, take down the notes that... It's going to be available on our website probably around Tuesday or Wednesday. So if you're thinking, oh, he, uh, there's no way I got any of that. Well, it's recorded. So uh, we look forward to that. Uh, why don't we stand together? We're going to have a closing song. Worship the Lord. Then we'll dismiss in prayer. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. 
If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.